Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design in Melbourne at RMIT University. And I'm with a very special guest. I feel very privileged to be sitting opposite this extraordinary talent who I first interviewed, oh, must have been 15, 20 years ago. And at that stage, I wasn't quite sure exactly where she was going to go, but she just seems to go from strength to strength. Uh, I'm speaking to Natasha Johns Messenger, who's now based in New York. Welcome to Melbourne again. Oh, thank you, Stephen, and thank you for that introduction. Natasha, you're an interesting artist. You started RMIT, and you've currently, for those who don't know, have got an amazing show on at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art in Berlin. It's from the... um, it goes till uh, the 25th of September, and that just blew me away. An extraordinary, extraordinary show. Um, oh, thank you. But let's go back to your start. You started at RMIT Fine Art. Yeah, I I, um, I left school and I went straight to, pa- uh, to art school, and I, um, I started out as a painter, actually. Back then, in the kind of 90s, it was a thing to go to art school and be a painter, and I started off as a painter, and then I quickly switched over to sort of abstraction and then to installation as I moved through the four-year course and I because I did my honours year as well and then later on I actually stayed at RMIT and did my master's finishing in 2000. Your mother said she didn't want an accountant in the family. (laughs) (laughs) She didn't actually say don't be an accountant but I think she would have been disappointed because she um in in our family there was always a kind of a um a love of art and she wanted her children to be artists, but she didn't have to want that because that was just how we unfolded anyway. Natasha, you started out with fine art and then you were drawn towards installation, sculpture, and you started a group in Melbourne in the uh, before you went to New York that won a, a, a prize. Mm-hmm. What was that all about? Well, actually, I didn't start the group. I no. was invited into the group. That was the Melbourne Prize for Urban, Urban Sculpture, and that was the inaugural Melbourne Prize in 2005, and that was with a fantastic group of artists. Um, Terry Bird, um, Bianca Hester, and Scott Mitchell invited me into this group, and we were called the OSW, o- Open Spatial Workshop. I'm no longer a part of that group because I left to go to New York, a bit like leaving a band, mm. but um, that was a fantastic... Um, uh, prize to win, and we actually designed a, a piece that um, was going to go opposite um, the current NGV and have these fantastic lawn discs that would spin really slowly on the lawns outside so that you could kind of sit on them and let the city go by. How wonderful. Yeah. And that didn't eventuate? It didn't eventuate, no. We did have talks with the city about it, and um, there were um, serious talks. And then uh, the person who was, um, Andrea Kleist, I think her name was, who was um, engaging us in the conversations, uh, she got another position somewhere else, and then it sort of just drifted off, mm. and it was going to cost quite a, mo- a lot of money to make, so there was nobody throwing the money down. But it's still a great design, and, and if it someone else picks it up, I think it would be quite amazing in the future. Um, along the way, I mean, you've had numerous awards. One was the Den Haag Sculpture Prize in 2007 uh, from the Netherlands. Yeah. Tell me about that, because that was a milestone, really. Oh, well, for me, I mean, it was a milestone for me simply because um, it was the first kind of solo prize that I'd won and it was just such a great event. There were lots of other Australian artists in the show um, people like Brooke Andrew and Callum Morton and um, lots of kind of good Australian names and this um, curator called um, Marie-Jean de Rouy 
I don't know exactly how to say it, but I'm pretty sure you, you say DeRoy. Um, she came to Melbourne and um, met with me actually through Juliana Engberg at ACCA and um, she kind of started to get really involved in my work, invited me over to Holland. I was a part of this show and then um, uh, I won the prize and, and what she sort of earmarked for me was the basement of the Esch Museum to do a piece um, and it was this fantastic building. Um, it was a little bit of a difficult project because the Esch Museum, as you can imagine, is very, very um, uh, protected and you don't want to kind of drill anything into the walls or the floors and so it was a kind of a completely weighted installation but the floors were so beautiful with these um, uh, 17th or maybe 16th century Dutch tiles that I used those tiles as a kind of an image in the installation and um, the 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 um, exhibition opening came along and the Queen of Holland opened the show and then... And she walked through the and installation? Walked, she only walked through it, I think, because it won the prize. So I got to take her through it. Um, I couldn't take it, uh, her through it alone because she was with her ladies-in-waiting and I never forget them walking through in front of her and saying, Spiegel, Spiegel, um, as if because they were trying to... I mean, for those who don't know my work, it's very perceptual and it uses illusions and, and, and mirrors. mirrors and glass... And so they were afraid for her safety. So they were telling her... That she'd her, bump into one of the mirrors. Yeah, and that she'd hurt herself. So they went in front of her and um, they were yelling out Spiegel. And, and I don't know what she told them in Dutch, but she said something like, I know, don't be silly, get out of my way. I want to enjoy it myself. Yeah. Or that's what I have read in her tone was like, I want to enjoy this by myself. And it just so happened that um, her family, that was her family's summer home when she was a little girl growing up. Mm-hmm. And the room in which I did the installation was called the silver garment, which is where um, the cutlery is kept for the for the main house and she remembered that room so when she went in there and I'd made an illusion that this kind of um, long corridor in this tiny room which was an illusion it, it was kind of I think maybe three or four times longer than it should have been um, she was very kind of confused and intrigued by the um, displacement that she was feeling and um, I think she had a good time in there, but um, it, was, it was fun to meet her. Um, Kerry Armstrong, the actress who opened the exhibition at Heidi, gave a very um, a wonderful, very um, uh, passionate speech. Yeah. And I think what was so lovely about her speech is she said people really... You're, it's very site-specific at the Heidi Museum. You walk in and you really respond in quite a different way to every piece and the grounds. And it's really almost for you, like you stand in front of a piece, you almost feel like Natasha has really curated a space so that I can actually have my own moment to really appreciate that installation. I thought it was just wonderful. Tell me about some of the pieces in that exhibition because it does take you by surprise. I think we'll start with perhaps one of the most heroic pieces in the exhibition, which is the zigzagged um, corridor style it's hard to explain. Yep. Help me out, Natasha. Okay. So the fenestration at Heidi is quite beautiful, as most people know who go there. Sometimes they close the windows off, depending on the show. Um, I, of course, wanted to open the windows up, and the curator, Linda Michael, had sort of commissioned this main installation in the centre, and I think that's why they invited me to do a show there, was because of these particular um, uh, hall- hallways of, a, of that... Um, perceptually shifting hallways that are essentially large kind of periscopes on on one end multiplied, making an, an, a, an illusion for you to walk into an experience. She wanted 
to put one of those in the central spot and that's so the built the exhibition kind of built out from the center of that um and essentially the the bottom line of the work in lots of ways is that um it's not showing you anything really unusual it's not showing you anything um uh, that you haven't seen before. It's not showing you anything except that um, it slows you down because you're not quite sure of what's real and what not. It slows you down to just be present where you are and it re... Um, I think it represents the space that you're standing in and forces you to slow down in some way. I so mean, literally, if you go fast, you're going to hurt yourself. Because so. all the mirrors on the angled walls really could cause damage if you race through it too quickly. Absolutely, you could really cause damage, <laughs> and that has happened. And, I, and I've been thinking a lot about that because um, the dangerous aspect is actually not a bad thing. I've just I've decided um, just because it it does jolt you out of being in the present moment in an unaware kind of way. You have to become aware. You have to be. You have to slow yourself down a little bit to actually make sure that you're safe for, for a start. But then hopefully then to just open your eyes to seeing where you are in and I'm hoping and I'm not sure if I do this but I um this is my aim is to uh take that level of basic awareness and just up at a notch because basically when you go through this wonderful corridor you stand at the very end and you look back I don't know how you do it everyone says how does she do it and then you see people actually arriving as they're about to walk into this corridor and you think how can I see them what, what's the trick yeah it's a it's a very simple um, optical physics in some way and I think the simplicity is what really baffles people in the end because they know it's just a wall and a mirror and that's and it's how it's configured, but it's taken me many years to perfect the and housing can, of the space. And you can be out if you're out by a couple of millimeters, it throws the whole illusion out. Absolutely. I mean, basically, if you're dealing with this installation, contains four mirrors in a configuration um, of life-size periscopes on their kind of end. But if one of them is out just by a little bit, it'll throw the next one out, and the next one, and the next one. Most Interestingly, most buildings I deal with aren't straight themselves, so it's very difficult, and then we have to try to um, mould the installation so that it, we can get the best, most straight version. But if you can imagine um, that one of the... If you imagine putting a laser beam down the centre, you'd want to get a straight line as much as you could, but if one of the mirrors out, then that straight line bends very quickly. So, yeah, it is about the millimetres. We, we joke in, in the installation about quarter millimetres, actually. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a lovely installation that's filled with bubbles, and Kerry alluded to the significance of bubbles in your lifetime. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, it's a, it's, this one is um, it's actually another Dutch word because it came out of a residency that I did in Holland. Um, it's called Luchtbel, which is, means air bubble in, in Dutch. Um, and I was thinking a lot about... Um, initially, I designed that piece um, to be a virtual sculpture so that you might be able to experience this in your phone so that you were inside a room and then there was a bubble inside the room, but you could only see it in your phone, a little bit like the madness of Pokemon at the moment mm. that's going on, but taking this kind of concept of a virtual reality and taking it that way. And then the bubble, um, to me, was it's the most um, kind of sacred building block of our lives, the bubble the, or the, the cell. Mm. Um, but it's also um, the sphere is also the largest, um, you know, you know, body, mass body that we, you know, experience in our universe. So the, um, 
you know, the sphere of the earth, the sphere of mm-hmm. a planetary sphere is a... Um, and I got to thinking about the micro and the macro, which is very interesting to me, like that we are made up of these tiny little round things and they also become large celestial bodies. And um, so I look at it like a very simple building block. And then beyond that, other things started coming out. Like I did love blowing bubbles as a kid and, you know, getting that perfect bubble and, and it was always going to burst. So I thought, what if it just doesn't burst? So I just wanted to hover there. <laughs> um, Natasha, you've had such an incredible career in a relatively short time. You went to New York in 2006. Mm-hmm. What was the impetus for that well um actually the the catalyst for it was actually that i won the green card in the lottery the green card lottery which is actually a real thing um that a friend of mine um the fantastic artist kate shaw was um applying to and said why don't you apply for it and it was very strange because it was late at night and i just got the um application in i didn't think about it for eight months or so, and then I got an official letter in the mail from the US government saying congratulations. And I thought, initially, is this a joke? Well, actually, initially, I thought it was Reader's Digest who used to find me because I used to collect stamps as a kid. (laughs) So I thought, oh, they found me because I used to have a black eagle, and they always used to start the letter with congratulations. Like, congratulations, here are your new stamps. And I thought, oh, no, it's Reader's Digest. How did they find me after all these years? Anyway, um, so... Uh, my with my, my current partner at the time, I had a conversation with her and said, "Look, let's well, let's um, um, go to New York. How about that? Wouldn't mm-hmm. that be great?" And we thought maybe three years we would go. Um, but it's so indefinite if you've got a green card. If you've card. got a green card, it lasts for ten years mm-hmm. initially, and then you can um, become a citizen after five years or renew the green card. Um, but the the main the bottom line for me was that um, I. Installation art is my main passion. What I what I what I create and do is extremely experience based, so it's extremely experiential. And I thought I'm not getting a lot of leverage here in Australia for making these works. I can make them again and again and again in Australia. That's fine, but I I want to um, give myself the chance of opening them up to an international audience. And this opportunity is arisen and I have fallen in love with New York before when I've been there and wouldn't that be a great life jump you know must have been incredibly daunting landing in New York with few connections I imagine yeah saying I want to be I mean and uh, New York has 400,000 creatives all wanting to, <laughs> to make their mark how do you deal with that oh well first of all um it's the way I think it's the way you deal with any um I, I believe in myself as an artist, I do, and I feel like that's because I put a lot of work into it, and I don't think you could do it unless you believed in yourself. So you end up landing in the city and saying, um, yeah, well, I, I know what I'm doing for myself, and I just want to make great work. That's yeah. all I really want. And so let's just see what happens and then try to make connections. It's a very interesting um, dance between the the um, you know the career moves and then the, the art itself. Like most artists, all I want to do is make the work. I don't want to have to worry about the career side of it, the networking, mm. the all those other things that aren't, aren't that interesting mm. or exciting to me, um, but it seems that it's part of it. So in the beginning, I was kind of... I like to... In one way, it's naive to just jump into New York and say, mm. I'm going to just make art here and see what happens. Um, in another way, there's no other way to do it. What would you say was a, a bit of a... Um 
you know, a break. It was well, actually, in the New break, York. The, my first break in New York came from um, two things. I got the ISCP studio from through the Australia Council for the Arts, and that was when I first arrived. I started applying for that, and I wasn't sure that I was going to get it or not, of course, because it was a competitive Australian um, mm. studio, and I got that, and that was my first break. Um, and what did that result in, Natasha? Well, that was a fantastic program. It was actually based in Manhattan at the time. Um, and it's the ISCP, the International Studio Curatorial Program, that um, um, basically has international artists from all over the... You know, international artists um, from all over coming together in a studio program. And what they do is they also have incredible connections with curators that then come to visit the art space and they have a fantastic um, network and they develop... Um, uh, it's it's process-based and that's mm. what I loved about it because mm. it's it's dedicated to artists having studios and making work mm. and bringing artists and new fresh artists in. And that wonderful piece that you did in New York, the uh, orange sphere. Oh, yeah. Okay. Where does this fit? Oh, that, that's interesting. Okay, so that that um, came about because I did um, an installation. Okay, so Sarah, that's an interesting, um, nice segue because Sarah Reisman, who's a fantastic curator in New York, she was working as artistic director. I might be wrong there, but I think it was artistic director was the, was the title at ISCP during the time I had my studios. When I had my studios there, I didn't build an installation. I was just working on ideas at that point. Um, a couple of years later, she saw an installation of mine at Governor's Island um, when, a, when a group called No Longer Empty had given me a, a small house um, to do an installation in, and I was so thrilled about this because I thought, oh, my goodness, I, lo I love getting a space, an interesting space to make a work, and I got this space and I, I went all out and I um, um, built this, um, my most significant installation to date in New York at that time, and she happened upon it, um, and she contacted me um, to congratulate me on the work, and then she invited me to um, connect to the Percent for Art program, which is 1% um, of every public building in New York goes to an artist. And um, the long story short is um, I was shortlisted for that commission, and then... I got an email saying it was a unanimous decision to give the commission to me to make the piece for that building, which was a new school that um, situated in um, a development in Queens called Hunter's Point opposite the East River. And so um, I was lucky enough too to get in with the architect, Sylvia Smith, who's who's one of the partners of the firm FX Fowl, um in New York, and she and I um, connected very strongly. I had presented five different works and uh, my favourite was her favourite. She was the big boss of the project. The Describe school, it, Natasha. The, school, oh, the, the actual piece ended up being um, on the terrace of the school building that hadn't been built yet. They had a can they were planning on making a canteen. Then they had this um, incre potentially incredible view of Manhattan but instead of having um, glass, um, they had perforated metal fence. You know, you can imagine it's a, it's a high school dedicated to children of, te you know, yeah. teenage years. Um, and security. so they have to make it safe. They have to make it, um, you know, be able to withstand the, the winds of the East River and so on. And um, I wanted to open it up and put um, a glass piece there, um, a transparent 
piece of um, so that they could view this incredible um, you know scene of Manhattan across the river without um, looking through the perforated metal which gives it a kind of a smoky look and you can never get a clear view um, so um, the, at first they said it can't be done the engineers said no um, this can't be done or it's too difficult because um, the winds on the East River are very fierce and um, we can't sign off on this. So Because the glass would crack. The, the glass would crack or, you know, the, and since then it's, withsta it's withstood Hurricane Sandy, so this is good news. Um, but what we actually ended up having to do was there was a way around it and you always have to kind of push a little bit to see what is possible and we had to build a specific shoe engineered inside the building itself um, and we were lucky enough to have... Um, access to um, to build this shoe because the building wasn't built yet. So I was in the stages. They invited me to be a part of the process, and I I was walking up when the building hadn't been built, and then we were able to, with the timing, um, you know, create this shoe, and then um, eventually take that sheet of glass and slide it in. You know, it's like so it's a three, permanent installation. It's a permanent. It's up for between fifty and ninety nine years, and it's um. That window's not going anywhere. I mean, it's three inches thick. You know, it's kind of baked, mm. a baked tint that views the East River. And Slightly the orange, orange tint. The orange tint comes from, again, site work, which is what I'm dedicated to most, you know. Um, you know, most of my work is site-related, but or even the colours, everything comes from the space itself. So there's a, there was an, an, a, a signature orange that the architects had used inside the building, so I used that mm. as the trigger for the orange tint that was then um, to use to frame it. Um, Natasha, you've also had a bit of, well, you've had a significant film um, career as mm -hmm. part of what you do as well. You went to Columbia University. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say yet I've had a significant film career because I can't, I don't think you can say that until I've made my first feature, oh, okay. but stand by. I've, I'll give <laughs> is myself Is there something in the years. wings? There is something in the wings, yeah. Um, I have, um, but what I did do was um, once I... Uh, kind of got to New York and did the ISCP studio, I thought um, it was not, I needed to connect to the city in a way and so I'd always wanted to do film since I was a teenager myself I mean I bought my first Super 8 camera when I was 12 and I wanted to add it to my um, you know artistic um, kit bag you know and make make film but I thought if I'm going to do that I don't want to just be an artist who assumes I can just walk on into a whole new um, genre a whole new genre and start doing it I thought I have to learn it properly and I uh, thought well let's just see if I can you know work this out how I might do that and so one thing led to another and um, I applied to Columbia and NYU and luckily got into both schools and then had a biggest the biggest kind of school decision of my life which school to go to and then I went to Columbia and I it was an incredible experience and it, it, an incredible experience on lots of levels so um, intense and um, grueling on some levels and just starting back at the bottom you know in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and, and not knowing anything about this um, and having to um, go backwards in some way to go forwards in film mm -hmm. so I ended up doing a five-year master's. You do wow. two years of contact, and then you have three years of research. So, um, and it was an incredible experience. And I did make two significant short films in that time, um, and I just fell in love with it. And I also understood how difficult it was to do it well, 
and I'm really excited to move forward and make a feature film in the next few years. I'm sure we're going to be seeing that. <laughs> <laughs> Natasha, before I let you go, were you ever interested in studying architecture because your work is so site-specific and you do work so beautifully with space and create a new sense of what spaces can be? Did it ever tag it, you know, did it ever tug at your... Never crossed my mind to study architecture. And I think, and I've tried to work out the reason for that, I think it's because um, it's too functional for me. I, I disrupt space. I think I I um I have a kind of even though I'm not you know a rebel by nature. I have a a want to disrupt, you know, and the experience. And the experience also just to disrupt in general to to find out more about why we're doing what we're doing. And I think that if I had um, um, gone with architecture, I would have um, been I would have felt quite stifled by the um, functionality of it in some yeah. way so in a lot of ways what i what i make is i've said this before but what mm. i make is a bit more like useless architecture mm. it doesn't do anything functional it does the opposite but, in some way um but the pleasure that that useless architecture really creates for people is <laughs> very memorable and and probably a lot more memorable than some of the architecture i get to see so yeah okay. um, thank you um, i think you could have easily turned your hand to that if you really wanted to. But. I would love to design my own house one day. I think uh, for those who haven't seen the exhibition, I really think if you only see one exhibition this year, go and see um, Natasha John's Messenger at the Heidi Museum. It's on till the 25th of September. You'll walk away looking at spaces very differently and also um, Natasha's artwork is, is really quite memorable. And uh, Natasha mentioned throughout this interview that it was about, I was lucky to do this, I was lucky to do that. I don't think it's luck, Natasha. I think it's talent. I really do. Thank you. So um, thanks so much for um, coming in today. It's really been a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Stephen. You've been with Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>